Well, will you turn with me in your Bibles to the letter to the Romans? We find ourselves in Romans chapter 3 today, picking things back up here in verse 9. And we'll be reading through verse 20. Romans chapter 3. Verses 9 through 20, would you stand with me as a sign of reverence for the reading of God's inspired and errant and infallible word. This is the word of God. Let's give it our full attention. What then? Are we any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, and together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Thus ends the reading of God's word. All flesh is like grass, and all its glory is like the flower of grass. The grass withers and its flower falls, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Amen. You may be seated. I'd like to begin with a little thought experiment. I want you to imagine for a moment a strikingly beautiful necklace of pearls. You have it in your mind? Each individual bead in the chain, a lustrous, perfect, polished pearl. And this whole string of pearls gleaming with that sort of refined and dignified character that only a string of pearls conveys. Imagine it hanging on the neck of your mother or on your wife. Think of the class and the beauty that it imparts. I want you to do this because there's an ancient Jewish method of teaching that Paul uses in this passage called a charaz. And a haraz literally means a string of pearls. Alfred Edersheim, in his classic work, The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah, says that this was a favorite method that derived its name from that stringing together of pearls. Only instead of stringing together pearls, the teachers would string together biblical quotations, biblical passages, 
things that shared a common theme for the sake of illustrating a point. And that is exactly what Paul is doing here. He's using this ancient rabbinical method called a chiraz, where he strings together all of these various passages of Scripture here in his concluding argument. Okay, now I want you to wipe away that image. And now instead of imagining a beautiful light string of pearls, I want you to imagine instead a string of jagged rocks, shards of glass, fragments of bone, and serrated chunks of metal. I think that is more the picture that Paul is painting for us this morning. Instead of an elegant necklace hanging around the neck of your mother, I want you to think of a grotesque and heavy collar, self-fastened around the neck of humanity. Collar that does not impart elegance and refined style, but that shames and enslaves its wearers. As Paul is stringing these scriptures together today, he is stringing together a catalog of the sins of humanity, a shard of depravity, a stone of depravity in conversation, a fragment of depravity in conduct, and all strung together in one last weighty indictment before the throne of God's justice. As we have been working through this letter, we remember that Paul has been reminding us over and over again that God is a just and impartial judge, one that gives to everyone according to what he has done. And it doesn't matter whether you are a Gentile, someone who grew up without the law, or whether you are a Jew, someone who grew up under the law. Everyone has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and stands as a sinner and as a transgressor before the perfect standard of God's righteousness. As we come to this passage today, Paul is wrapping up his sort of closing arguments. Like a prosecuting attorney, he's reminding his readers and reminding us as his hearers of all the evidence that is piled up against humanity. And so as we consider this closing argument today, I want to consider it again under that theme of God's judgment as a just judge. And so we'll look at three points here. First, that this is a concluding judgment. We'll see that in verse 9 as Paul draws his argument to this very simple conclusion that there is none righteous, not even one. It's a concluding judgment. Secondly, we'll see that it's a condemning judgment. We'll find this in verses 10 through 18. As Paul begins to craft this grotesque catalog of the sins of mankind, from the very word of God itself. And he shows how all of these things serve to condemn us. It's a condemning judgment. And then finally, we'll see in verses 19 through 20 that it is a comprehensive judgment. As Paul shows us the scope of this judgment, as every mouth is stopped and as the whole world is held accountable to God. So first then, Consider this concluding judgment with me. Paul says in verse 9, What then? Are the Jews any better off? No, not at all, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. 
Now, the first thing that we need to settle here is the question of who Paul actually has in view when he asks, are we any better off? You'll notice that the ESV translation that many of you have in front of you reads, are we Jews any better off? And probably your Bible has a footnote that lets you know that the word Jews is not actually there in the Greek text. Uh, That is an interpretive decision on the part of the translators. Uh, They believe that we are meant to understand that Paul is referring to himself as among the Jews and sort of continuing that argument about the Jews. And that is certainly possible. And it is a responsible way to understand this, and many commentators take that view. I think it makes sense of the context. But there's another way to understand this, and that is that Paul is actually saying something that is even more personal, more personal to himself and to his associates in the gospel, and more personal to the Roman Christians, his hearers, and consequently more personal to us. It may be that the we here is meant to be the, have the same reference as the us, of verse 8. Many charge us with saying, and the we of verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says. In both of those instances, Paul is clearly referring to himself and to his fellow Christians. He's already condemned the whole of humanity under sin, and now he asks, what then are we any better off? That is to say, We Christians, whether we're Jews or Gentiles, are we any better off than the rest of the world? Are we somehow excluded from this indictment? Is Paul himself somehow set apart from this pool of sinful pollution? Whether he refers back to his Jewish brothers or to his Christian brothers, his answer is a resounding no. Not at all. We've already charged, and that is a prosecutorial term, we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. And notice that he says they're under sin. It's not just that they're in sin, not just that they are sinners, but that they are under sin. And when you have this language of being under sin in the Bible, it means something more than that you are just sinners. It it has something to do with being imprisoned or enslaved to sin as a power. Uh, Think of Galatians 3.22, which tells us that Scripture has imprisoned everyone under sin. It conceives of sin like this sort of cruel taskmaster enslaving us and driving us. Our sinfulness is the great equalizer. It is what levels the playing ground before the throne of God's justice. Because, as Paul puts the first jaded pearl on the string, he puts it there as the conclusion to his whole argument. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. There is no one righteous. And that brings us to the second point. If we have seen Paul's concluding judgment, 
we must also see that this is a condemning judgment. And here is where Paul now really employs that ancient rabbinical technique as he begins to string together all of these uh, scripture passages imprisoning all of us under sin. In his closing argument, it's God who gets the final word. Paul has been making these arguments, and now he just says, let's let God speak. And he brings all of this evidence together. So consider this condemning judgment in verses 10 through 18, this catalog of human sinfulness. And let me just point out a couple of things here. First, that this is one of those passages which really serves to undergird the church's doctrine of the total depravity of man. That man is, as our confession says, wholly defiled in all the parts and faculties of soul and body, and that in our guilt and corruption we are utterly indisposed, disabled, and made opposite to all good, and wholly inclined to all evil. When our confession says that, it is drawing from passages of Scripture like this. Now, the point is not that man is as bad as he could possibly be. That's not what we mean when we speak of total depravity. Of course, you could always envision man being just a little bit worse. Rather, the point is that there is not one part of our faculties as human beings, our mind, our will, our passions, there is not one part of us that is not bent and corrupted by the fall. Or as Paul says it, it's written, no one is righteous, not even one. And the second thing I want to point out here as we go through this catalog of sins is that you see that Paul moves pretty systematically through things here. He begins in verses 10 through 12 by saying some general things about the total depravity of our character as fallen human creatures. He then moves from speaking generally about our character to being very specific about our conversation as he focuses on our throat and our mouth and our lips and our words. And then finally, in verses 15 through 18, he moves from our character and our conversation to saying some things about our conduct and our actual actions. So let's just work through this and consider each of these in turn. Uh, Look first at this depravity of character. There's none righteous, not even one. And I want you to notice how these verses, 10 through 12, are actually bookended by or bracketed by these words, no one is righteous or no one does good, not even one. Paul does this for the sake of emphasis. Often that is the way that repetition is used. And notice that in the repetition, the words righteousness and goodness stand in for one another. What does it mean to be righteous? Or what does it mean to be truly good? Well, to be righteous means to be perfect in goodness. To be good means to be perfect in righteousness. They define one another to be perfect in moral uprightness and integrity. And that is more than being simply innocent. It is more than being simply free of guilt. It means to have perfectly kept God's law in all that he demands. It's not simply that you haven't done the things that you shouldn't do. 
It's that you've also done all the things that you ought to do. It's not something that is purely negative. I'm safe because I haven't murdered. It's doing the righteous acts of loving your neighbor positively. That is what it means to be righteous. It means to be both guiltless and positively good. And when Scripture looks out at the the mass of fallen humanity, what does it find? We read it today in Ecclesiastes, that there is no one who is righteous. There is no one who has not sinned. There is none righteous. No, not even one. No one understands. Our capacity to think and to reason truly and spiritually is broken. We do not comprehend or grasp the things of God as we ought, as Leon Morris says insightfully, for surely no one would really choose sin if he fully understood what he was doing. If we saw sin as God sees it, if we understood its corrosive, destructive effects, if we comprehended its anti-relational character and the way it divides you from one another and divides you from God, if you really understood the devastating nature of sin, you would be repulsed by it. And you would seek the things that God seeks. But what is the indictment? It's actually that no one seeks for God. It's not only that no one understands, but no one seeks for God. Your interests and God's interests are not aligned. We don't seek out his person or his perfections. We don't seek out his truth or his wisdom. We don't seek him. We're too busy seeking after other things, seeking after the gods of this world, after many things that cannot and will not satisfy us. Or as the scripture says, we have all turned aside. Uh, This is a verb that refers to something that is very deliberate. It's a deliberate turning aside from something. It is the avoidance of something. Uh, The same way a criminal, when they see a police officer coming down the street, will try to deliberately avoid them and turn aside. They don't want an uncomfortable encounter. This is not an accidental sort of thing. I just didn't see you there. This is, I don't want to be anywhere near you. It is sinfully active as we turn aside from our Creator and Lord so that together we have actually become worthless. You see the logic and progression of this. Together we have become worthless. I think it would probably better be translated, we have become unprofitable or we have become useless I don't think the idea is so much that we are worthless as that we have become useless. We're meant to see this not not in a sort of an intrinsic value sense to what man is. All creatures created in the image of God have value. They're not worthless in that sense. We're meant to understand this in an ethical sense. 
in the sense that because of our sinfulness, we have become spiritually useless. We are not fulfilling the purpose for which we were created. God created us that we might glorify Him and enjoy Him forever. And in our sinfulness, we do not meet the ends of that purpose. We have altogether become useless. No one does good, not even one. Well, if we are depraved in our character, if that is, gives us a sense of our character, we're also depraved in our conversation. And in verses 13 through 14, Paul zeroes in on the corruption of our speech. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. This is from Psalm 5.9. Now, this has been understood in two ways. Some understand it in terms of the foulness of an open grave. And, and this is a gross image, right? You might think of the stench that would come out from an open tomb filled with rotting flesh. Others, like Luther, thought the point was that the throat here, like an open grave, is like a throat that is waiting to swallow up uh, the victims of deceit. Either one of these is possible, whether we think of the throat as sort of belching out deceit off of our tongues, or whether we think of the throat as this sort of hungry organ ready to devour and swallow up the victims of deceit. Neither one of those is a very pretty picture of who we are. What he says next is more clear as he speaks about the poisonous depravity of our speech. The venom of asps is under their lips. We're like snakes. That's from Psalm 143. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Psalm 10.7. And I think we do well to remember that the things that we say in our conversation and the things that we say with our mouths, these things bubble up from within our hearts, don't they? It's out of the abundance of the heart that the mouth speaks. That's what Jesus said. If our speech is deceitful and our speech is poisonous, it's because it flows out of a deceitful and poisonous heart. We've seen what Paul says about our character. We've seen what he says about our conversation. Let's look at what he says about our conduct. He moves from the throat, tongue, lips, mouth, now to the feet and to the eyes. He's moving from speech to action, from conversation to conduct. First, he draws on Isaiah 59. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. Notice how he focuses on the speed at which we run to evil. He's expressing something here about our actual eagerness to do what is wrong. It's not simply that we do it when we have no other recourse. We do it because we want to do it. We run to it. We pride ourselves in it. And is it any surprise that it results in ruin and misery? That it results in conflict and the absence of peace? Sometimes, maybe you have had this experience, I have had this experience fairly recently, where I've seen the sinful choices of my friends as they've made a total train wreck of their lives through grievous sin 
and yet they're still surprised by the consequences. They wonder how could they have come to such heartbreak and ruin and misery? What do we expect? What do we think that sin will lead to? Sin is deceitful. It sells a lie. But you know what? It is scary at how easy it is to see the effects of sin from the outside when it's the sins of others and how difficult it is to see the effects of sin from the inside when it's our own. How easily we can deceive ourselves that sin's consequences won't be all that bad. That the temporary pleasure will outweigh the ruin and the misery and the heartache. God will not allow it. Where sin is pursued, peace is not known. In verse 18, Paul sums this all up, all of our depravity up with the words of Psalm 36. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Ordinarily, when we think about the fear of the Lord, we think about it as a good thing, right? We, we think of it as respect or as reverence. In that case, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and that's true. When we live with a sense of respect for the Lord, that is where wisdom begins. Psalm 36 uses a different word for fear. It's not that Hebrew word, yirah, that means uh, respect or reverence. It, it is a word, pachad, which means terror. The idea in Psalm 36 is that the wicked are so brazen that they flatter themselves that their wickedness cannot be found out. Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in their hearts so that they, they go along in it. They commit their, themselves to the way of evil because they do not fear God. They do not see his judgment as a threat. Sin is blinding to them. It prevents us from seeing ourselves as we truly are, and it prevents us from seeing God as he truly is. And I think it's important to remember that this is not just Paul's verdict. It's not just Paul's verdict about the Jews and Gentiles. It's not just Paul's verdict about our situation. This is God's verdict. Paul is letting God have the last word. This is what God says about your sinful condition. And so if at any point in this you are objecting, you need to step back and remember that you are not a fault finder with God. This is what God says of us. The string of dark deeds that hangs around the neck of sinful humanity is God's judgment, and it condemns us. And that brings us to our final point then today, where Paul once again says something now about the comprehensive nature of this judgment. Verses 19 through 20. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. The law of God, his righteous standard, whether written by God on tablets of stone or rather written by God on human hearts, it does its work. 
The law shows us where we fall short of his glory. The law stands uh, as that perfect rule of righteousness. That's the language that our confession uses, but it takes that language of a perfect rule of righteousness from the scriptures itself. Uh, It takes it from this imagery, for example, of the law as being like a plumb line that is set in the midst of God's people that shows us where we are deviating, that shows us where we are crooked in our lives. And in revealing our sin, what does the law do? It takes away all of our excuses, and it shuts our mouth before Almighty God. It's so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. Not just the Jews, not just the Gentiles, not just Christians, everybody, the whole world is held accountable to God. You know, there's this wonderful picture of, I think, what Paul is talking about near the end of the book of Job. Job has been arguing with God. Uh, Job feels frustrated with God. Uh, And the Lord comes to him, and he asks him this question, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? You want to argue with God? Then answer. And how does Job answer? He says, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. That is what we are meant to see here. That when the law speaks, we all hang our heads and we all put our hands over our mouths. Imagine that day of final judgment when all the masses of humanity from all places and all ages are gathered before the judgment seat of Christ. And that day there will be no more fish shaking There will be no more arguing. There will be no more fault-finding. There will be no contending with the Almighty. As one of my professors once said, in that day the whole world outside of Christ will be 100% epistemologically self-conscious sinners. That is to say that everyone will know with 100% certainty that in themselves and apart from Christ, they stand guilty and condemned before the living God of heaven and earth, and that they will justly deserve whatever punishment they receive. The whole mass of humanity will stand with their hand over their mouth. The whole world will be held accountable to God, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. The sentence here actually begins with the word therefore in Greek. Therefore, by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. That is to say, because the law shows that everyone is guilty and condemned, because it silences everyone when it speaks, therefore, by the works of the law, no human being will be justified, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. The works of the law will be no help to anyone, There will be nothing that you can appeal to because none of us have kept the law perfectly. Now, that does not mean that the law is of no help to us. The law is a great help to us. 
It's a great help to us because it shows us we're helpless. And that's a good thing. We need God to show us that we are helpless in order that we might run to Him for help, in order that we might run to the help of a Savior. As Spurgeon once wrote, all the law can do is show us our sin. The law is a mirror. He takes this from James. James talks about the law like a mirror. The law is a mirror, and looking in it, you can see your spots, but you cannot wash in a mirror. If you want to be cleansed from your stains, you must go somewhere else. The object of the law of God is not to cleanse us, but to show us how much cleansing we need to reveal our disease, not to be the remedy for it. The law is not your remedy. The gospel is your remedy. And the remedy is what comes next. The remedy is in the next words, in that holy conjunction, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Praise the Lord. Now the righteousness of God is being manifested apart from the law. Though the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there's no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. You know, one of the passages that Paul quoted in this string of jaded pearls, he quoted Isaiah 59. Their feet are are swift to shed blood and their paths are ruin and misery. But you know what comes after that in Isaiah 59? The prophet goes on to write these words, that the Lord saw it. He looked down and he saw that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man, not one. He wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought salvation, and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing. He wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. And it ends with the words, And a Redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. What happens when the Lord looks down at sinful humanity and finds that there is no one righteous, not even one? What happens is that God himself comes. God comes. He sends his Son as the righteous one that humanity needs. In the fullness of time, He sends forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law. A Son who would be perfectly righteous. A Son who would truly understand. A Son who would seek for God. A son 
who would not turn aside and become useless, but would turn to good. There would be no deceit in his mouth. His throat would not be like an open grave. It would speak words of life. There would be no venom under his tongue. His words would be full of blessing and sweetness. His feet would be quick to shed blood, but it would not be the blood of others. It would be his own blood as he offered himself up, a propitiation for sins, to satisfy the wrath of God and to be received by faith. And in the place of ruin and in the place of misery, he would bring restoration and joy and hope and he would make known the way of peace. Beloved, the way of peace is before you today. The way of peace is not in your striving. It is not in the law. You have nothing to say. And so let the law do its humbling work in your life. Let it shut your mouth to all of your pride, to all of your excuses, to all of your fault-finding. But as surely as the law closes your mouth, beloved, let the gospel open your mouth to confess that Jesus is Lord. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you for your law. We thank you that it shows us how helpless we are, that that is the way that it helps us. It shows us how far short we fall of your glory, and it drives us to a Savior. Even to that one, when you looked down upon sinful humanity and you found that there was none righteous, not even one, you yourself came and you put on righteousness as a breastplate, and you won salvation. A Redeemer came to Zion, even our Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord, we thank you that you have become all that we were not. You have become the very righteousness of God for us. And so, Lord, we thank you that that righteousness is now being manifested in the gospel and that we might receive it with faith, that we might look in hope to that day of judgment, that we will know that we who have confessed you, Lord, will stand clothed in the perfections of your own Son and be received in your presence. Help us then, Lord to rest in you, for we say it in Jesus' name. Amen. When our Savior saw that there was no one to deliver, and he came, and he put on righteousness as a breastplate, and he put on that whole armor of salvation, and he won our salvation, this was the way that he did it. He did it not with a sword, not with a shield, but he did it through the cross. That is where he goes on our behalf, bearing our sins in his body to the tree in order that we might die to sin and live unto righteousness. This is the way that he conquers death and hell, sin and misery. It is through shedding his own blood. It is through the breaking of his own body. And so today as we come to this meal, we can come with confidence and boldness. We can come knowing that our Savior called us to come and to take these elements and said, do this in remembrance of me. 
And so today, in spite of all of our sinfulness, in spite of all of our guilt and shame for our sins, if we come in faith, we can come boldly to this meal because that great holy conjunction has occurred. But now, the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel. And the sacrament is nothing but a visible picture of the gospel itself. This is good news for you. But it is not good news for everyone. It is good news for those who trust in Christ. It is good news who are participating in his death and resurrection through faith. But it is not good news for those who continue to shake their fists at God, who continue to find fault with the Almighty. For those, it is a terror. Because what it symbolizes is blood poured out and a body broken. And the simple truth is that you either undergo this judgment in Christ or you will undergo it yourself in that day of judgment. And so even in this moment, I would appeal to you through the gospel that you would not let this moment pass you by, that you would look to Christ in faith and repentance. And he promises that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. If you are saved, then you know you're saved because you trust in Christ. Then come to this meal and find all that you need today as your Savior tells you, this is for you. This is for your forgiveness. This is for your relief. Let's pray and ask that the Lord would take these ordinary elements and set them apart for this holy use. Lord, as we come to your table now, we come, nothing in our hands we bring, simply to thy cross we cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul we to the fountain fly, wash us, Savior, or we die. But Lord, you have washed us, you have cleansed us through your own blood. Your perfect life was offered in exchange for our sinful lives. And that death made perfect, final, full satisfaction. When you come again for us, it will not be to deal with our sins. It will be to save those who are eagerly waiting for you. And so, Lord, comfort our hearts now, even through this visible demonstration of the gospel, as we eat your flesh and drink your blood in faith. We say it in Jesus' name. Amen.